This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. And this is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is your guest from the mountains between Lake Tahoe and Reno. Distinguished guest. <laughs> Casey, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Before we get started and get into technology and data centers, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Who are you? Yeah, it's a big question. It's always a little difficult to answer because I've done so much over the years, but I really have focused on energy and data centers for since the 1990s. So for over a quarter century now, and that's still what I do today is I focus predominantly on how to make data centers more energy efficient, more sustainable, and ultimately lower the cost of energy and do that in a variety of ways. But I also have a lot of forays into data center development, data center design, and even undersea fiber cables and, and also Tesla factory and battery cell engineering. And so, yeah, a, a, a wide variety of stuff. <laughs> so we're going to get into all of that. Now, Casey and I have known each other for, I would say a decade and a half, maybe two decades. I don't know. I don't want to age myself or Casey <laughs> or here. I just got a very- I'm looking, I'm looking at both of you and, and frankly, <laughs> both of you are aged incredibly gracefully. I feel like the old man on this thing. I'm not sure I'm the oldest one here, but certainly I feel that way. I want to step back just a, a little bit. Your educational background. You've got a very, very diverse background. You are an architect. You have been involved in theater, engineering, why the data center industry? Yeah, it's a great question to Bill. When I was in college, I did study a variety of different topics and, and, and I really, I could have kept going to college because I wanted to keep learning and keep earning more degrees, not for the sake of earning degrees, just because I love to learn. I still do that today. I, I use the University of YouTube to continue to learn new topics all the time. But the, the real reason was I wanted to change the world. I know that sounds like a really kind of cliche term. But when I graduated college, I felt like we had to do something about making businesses more energy efficient. And this really stemmed back from the time I was actually eight years old. I started studying energy back then. At 10 years old, I, I started working on energy projects and really from fuel cells to photovoltaics to really energy efficient design of buildings. And that's what led me into architecture. But also by the time I was 12, I earned a national science fair in a, in a renewable energy project and an energy efficient design of a building and kind of kept on with that path. And when my, I was in college, my dad at around 20 years old asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I want to start an electric car company. And, and realized when I was 20, that was, well, not to date myself too much, but it was a long time ago, I'm calling th over 30 years ago now. And so even then I was still could see that there was a lot of things we could do to improve the efficiency of transportation of our buildings and really our whole built environment. And so when I graduated college, I looked around and said, okay, what are the industries that really need energy, that take energy that is vital to their business and that, that really put a lot of emphasis on the importance of energy. And so hence the cost as well as the efficiency and the utilization or use of it. And ultimately the sustainability, because we didn't even really have that word sustainability. I graduated. One of my degrees is in business sustainability, what we called at the time, corporate environmental management. And so I went into the tech world and at the tech world at the time, it was, I worked for Sun Microsystems, the biggest name and player in the tech world at that time. 
and focused on energy efficiency in their buildings and all their labs and data centers. And this back in the 90s. And then that really led me into data centers. I realized how interesting and unique data centers were at a time when data centers really weren't a thing, right? We hadn't really built a lot of data centers. They were still these small little corporate data centers we used and, and Sun was at the forefront of that. But I had an opportunity to go work for Exodus Communications, who was building the world's data centers, 60 plus of them. And by the year 2000, and was over a third of the world's internet capacity in data centers. So it was a place to be to really affect change and lead sustainability, energy efficiency, and lower cost, and ultimately power development and site selections for data centers around the globe. So that's what led me into it was really an emphasis to try to make the biggest change I could. How did you end up picking energy as a kid? I mean, right. That's that that in the idea. family and that was something that you guys discussed growing up. I mean, where did that interest <laughs> really sparkle from? Yeah, it's a great question. It probably started with taking apart the toaster oven and then figuring out how to put it back together and learning about that when you're sure your parents love that. Six or seven or eight years old, right? The, the fun thing that a, an eight-year-old does is take apart the appliances in the house and and then hopefully get them back together so they can you can make dinner that night. So it was I was a fascination with that call it engineering of those different products and how those things worked. And a lot of reading of popular science and popular mechanics, those magazines that really enthralled me. And was that a parental, was that a parental influence? Were, were your, were your parents in science and power and energy and, and any of, uh, of that? No, not, not at all. That's a, that's a great question. Not, not one bit. They, my dad did end up leading research and development and essentially finance for the military and, and end up being part of the joint chiefs. But his focus wasn't on energy. He was a fighter pilot and got into leading really all new weapons development and procurement for several of the armed forces. So it was, we were, work, we were living in DC at the time. And at the time, President Carter had put photovoltaics onto the White House. And I thought, well, this is fascinating. And you know, we just come out of the energy crisis of the 1970s, or we're coming out of it, we're kind of seeing a little bit of a repeat of that now. And, and so it really just it interested me. And at, the more I read about it, I kind of quickly discerned, even as a young eight-year-old mind, that Energy was going to be a unique thing of the future that we're all going to need. We're going to need more of it. It was going to need to be more sustainable. And also we're going to have to really try to do our best to retain the cost at a reasonable level and keep it clean, right? And that there were a lot of challenges in doing that, particularly looking back 40 years ago or more now, right? And we've progressed tremendously since then because of so many people doing some great things, but it was really from those learnings early on that just kind of put the writing on the wall that we were going to have issues. And those writings are still on the wall today that we're going to continue to have a lot of issues and they're only going to probably exasperate in the near term. What was your interest in ocean studies? I mean, that still boggles my mind. How did <laughs> yeah. ocean studies? It, it all stemmed from one professor and it was a phenomenal professor and it, it, it opened my eyes to earth sciences and I fell in love with them and took a oceanography course and fell in love with the professor, not, not, not in any intimate way, but just with his teachings. It was so good and he, it was so impactful. And one of the neat things about oceanography, which is where one of my degrees is in, is it encompasses all of the earth sciences, geology, biology, chemistry, physics, of course, geography, and then of course, the law of the sea, which is really the only treaty that's ever been signed by every single country in the world, right? And, that, and that's because of course, the oceans cover roughly three quarters of the earth's surface and it, it most of the world's population lives near the oceans and we rely on it in so many ways so it was really a fascination with all the different sciences that earth oceanography encompassed and i really fell in love with the the physics part of it and mechanical engineering so i pursued more classes in that and automotive engineering and 
So you could tell I kind of had interest in a lot of different areas. In oceanography, even though I never worked directly in oceanography in any way, it was just a passion for the oceans and that knowledge base. And it's really been applicable in so many ways with development of renewable energy as all renewable energy essentially drives, is driven by the sun and in some way or, or, or form, right? Whether it's wind or tidal or solar, right? Of course, and, and so forth. And, and so anyways, it, it kind of has led me to a lot of understanding of the earth and how we develop projects hence data center projects and big data center projects like I've worked on. I think what's, what's, what's amazing is, I mean, we have a true Renaissance man with us, right? I mean, just a a student, a student of the world. And what I've always loved about the the data center industry and what we've tried to preach here to younger folks that we're trying to bring into the industry, which is the goal of our, our entire organization here is this notion that you can be interested in all of these various things and, and the data center as a community has all of these subverticals, has all of these elements of, of science of on the environmental side, on the mechanical side, et cetera. So how much, it sounds like that was a, a, a big draw to, to, to our industry. I mean, clearly you could have done anything because you're, you're, you're clearly overqualified for, for any single thing. Well, it is a fascinating thing about our industry is that it encompasses all kinds of different disciplines, right? From finance to, of course, various different other disciplines of business and accounting to obviously sales and really detailed engineering development, real estate, it goes on and on, right? We have all these different, and of course, operations, right? There's all these different fascinating elements to it. And then we bring, and that's not even touching on the computer science or the computer or networking or any of those other aspects. Like what does it, what actually happens inside the data? (laughs) Exactly. All I just mentioned, there was just kind of some of the outside stuff. And then we get into the inside, right? Where it gets even more detailed when you start diving into software and hardware engineering. And this is one, I think the really key points that we have to make as industry in order to both recruit people, both young and and experienced, is that really you can apply those skills from any other industry. And so when I hear HR people saying, hey, they can't find good data center people, well, stop looking for data center people, right? Look for people with all kinds of different experiences because that's what we need. And the more diversity that we have of experiences, professional experiences and educational experiences, the better we become as an industry because it's a collaborative effort to design, build and operate a data center really well, right? And so we don't need just kind of people that have really rigid backgrounds in one area. We really need this broad diversity so we can open the minds and the ways that we approach things and how we do it and how we work with each other as well. And I think one of the nice things as well is because we are a fairly new industry, just in the grand scheme of things, we there we have not been burdened with a bunch of regulatory op- standard operating procedures. You can actually have an impact and make change in such a real way that I think that's something that very few people focus on, but but it's it's so tangible. The, the impact that you can have, you have a good idea, that can turn into a design scheme in in no time, which which just speaks to our the fluidity of of of, of what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a fascinating thing work in this industry, especially if you can get into places where you have that decision making ability where you can really influence, yeah, designs of data centers and how things are built and what, the way they're built. And and I would like to, one of the things I would like to really kind of do and I continue to do as I've done throughout my career is make these paradigm shifts, not keep doing things the same way because the same way isn't going to get us to anything more than incremental change. And we have to make much more substantial change than just small little improvements, 
right? We have to make big leaps and bounds. The only way to do that is to really think outside of the box, right? That whole cliche again, but it isn't, you know, how do we think outside the box? We think differently. We, we approach it differently. We approach it with different people in different ways and not think the same way and replicate the same solutions that we've been doing with just a slight improvement. We have to completely rethink why are we even doing it this way? If you can snap your fingers and make one massive change, like the industry, like everything about this industry, right? At, at this point, if there was one thing that you can change, like you wish that this, this, like the tectonic shift, we, we went in, we've gone in this direction and we can't move because it's like turning the Titanic. Is there one thing you can pinpoint that, that you think is a, is, is a massive issue that needs to be changed in our industry? Yeah, Phil, it's a great question. And I would actually, I'd like to to take a little liberty here, liberty here and give you oh, two, please. because I think there's really two it. things that are pretty key. And one is we have to rethink about data centers and the communities that we're in. We are not, data centers are not just an insular box that's completely isolated from the communities. We've had literally thousands of power outages across the U.S. over just this week, right? Because of the heat waves we're going through and the really increasing demand for electricity and the not really necessarily increasing supply of that electricity. And so we really have to rethink how we're part of that community. There's no point of a data center staying operational with all this great stored energy of diesel fuel and battery capacity and stuff if the whole entire rest of the community is down, right? People can't go home to their families to make meals and keep their- But Casey, home. Facebook is still up. That's all that matters. Instagram is still up. <laughs> right. Talk video well, plus power. Going. Yeah, and if our power's down at home, obviously <laughs> connecting to Facebook is not going to be our, our top priority, right? And so we have to make sure we're part of the community and really serving that community. That's number one. And we can talk more into specifics of that. And the second is really rethinking about redundancy. We have redundancy of data centers. Why do we need so much redundancy within a data center, right? Our data centers are already designed or the, or the, the loads, the IT loads and the software and, and so forth are already designed immediately fail over as they do on a regular basis to other data centers. We can do that manually or on, autonomously right? Why do we need so much redundancy within the data center to keep stacking our redundancies onto redundancies when we already have dozens or hundreds, or even for some companies I work with thousands of data centers around the globe, and they all are interconnected and they fail over each other. And so we can serve our customers easily from any data center, almost anywhere without having to have all this extra capital expenditure that's really sitting around doing for the most part, most of the time, nothing. Take and that so uptime institute. <laughs> There goes all the tier levels, <laughs> but that's a great point. That is, uh, but that is a great point. Yeah. Do Why do you that? think that is? Why do you think that is? Well, because we think about redundancy or, or uptime, right? At the infrastructure basis, right? And really we need to think about uptime at the user basis. Really all that matters is that you and I, you, Phil and Nabil and I all can communicate right now as we are over the internet, the way that we are doing right now, we just need to be able to know that we can stay connected. It doesn't really matter if the data center down the street goes down, right? As long as it fails over to another data center or the hardware inside the data center fails, right? We don't need to have all this redundancy of infrastructure, redundancy of hardware and redundancy of the software layers at each level so that nothing can ever fail when the fact is that all will fail. Well, it speaks, it's, to what, I mean, it speaks to what you were talking about earlier, right? Which is the idea that a lot of those 
metrics were established at a time where there were there wasn't the ability to distribute these workloads. There wasn't the software that was available. Google coined the, the ability to really distribute workloads over regions across data centers. I mean, that just wasn't a thing. And a lot of the people that are making these decisions or making decisions based on a flawed 1990s, early 2000s methodology of this one cabinet full of equipment can never fail because if it fails, then I'm out of a job when in reality, you know, it's, it's inevitable that it's going to fail. One yeah, and, 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 and the uptime were, were incredibly vital to this industry and they did incredible work, right? That got us there. And I, I was the, I was part of Exus Communications and we were serving Microsoft, Google and Yahoo. And when Yahoo is the biggest internet property in the world, and they went down for several hours. It made national headlines. Obviously, for those kids that, that don't know, Yahoo used to be a search engine that people used. I'm kidding. It was actually really a portal. Was more what it is, right? <laughs> was and and it's still to this day is the number one site, I believe, for finance and in sports and other things, right? But the point being is that what those services did really all reside in one location, one data center, right? And or one with one failover point. And when that didn't work, yeah, it failed. And nowadays. You think about, and even a financial company I worked with five years ago had only two locations, data center locations, right? Unheard of for something of such a critical service as as they do. But today also most users or most applications are out in the web, the web, the internet, the cloud, right? And so they're served by a variety of different users. And so we, and we can move it around from one service to another service instantly. And so that whereas we have a lot of ability to use the, the, the cloud services, those online services, right? As a backup tool or to use other ones as a backup to them and to move these loads around. So a lot of that work that was done really is focused on the infrastructure side, which is still important, but the reality is we need to think about the end user. I mean, that's really where our metric should come down to is what's the end user experience. What do you think? I mean, I think from my experience and observation, the biggest challenge that I foresee is the generational divide. There's a technology divide. There's a bunch of silos. And 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 for, for our listeners, that's not bad. I mean, this is a common practice and, and pains that you go through as a growing industry. Do you think if you were to bridge the silos that exist with facilities, with IT, with hardware, with application layer, would that bridge the gap and potentially eliminate the the stranded capacity and over-designing and under, under-provisioning environments? Absolutely. And that's an area I've, I've worked on my whole entire career and I continue to work on is really bridging those gaps. And so when I do day, day center designs, I don't work with just the engineers. I pull in the finance and the operations folks because they need to be part of that discussion. Is this, it doesn't matter how up is that data center if it costs a ton, right? Or if it's not really operable because we all know that roughly the statistics show that 90 plus percent of data center outages are caused by us, the people we're operating it, right? We make mistakes, we're, we're human and that will happen. And so we have to make sure that we're operating in a way that is easy for the users and that it can deal with those human caused mistakes that will happen, whether they're intentional or unintentional, right? And I say intentional because obviously we can have forms of terrorism that can happen to data centers and things that can take them down. So we have to be able to respond and react to things that we really can't predict. And that's another thing too. We can't build this data centers, this monolith that we think is just going to stay the same for the next 10 or 20 years. The technology is evolving every single day, right? The people, the users and how we use it. And of course the operators of them are changing every day. And so we really have to think about it. So it's absolutely adaptable. It's changeable. It's, it's amenable to the future, whatever that technology and how it's going to be used. And that it really can be that this adaptable platform. And we has to, that means we have to really involve all the different disciplines within the company. 
Right. So it's how they're selling the service. It's how the users are using it and all the people in between. So yeah, we have to break. I, I don't, I wouldn't say we have to break that size. We just have to work within all the different silos and make sure that we're working as a, as a collective team, right. For the collective effort, not just, Hey, I'm, I'm designing a great data center while I'm operating it really well. Well, are we really, are we really talking to each other to make sure that we're designing it and building it and operating it? So it all works for well for everybody. So roughly about three decades in doing this, are you at a point in place where you can generalize a statement as to the progress? Are we as an industry willing to change and, and, and get to that energy efficient metric that you're talking about referring to here? Absolutely. You look at the, the incredible progress we've done as an industry. If I'll just step us back to the year 2000, when I started working for Exis Communications and I sat in the, the, the first engineering meeting to talk about how we're going to design our future data centers and I brought up energy efficiency, everybody at the time was like, yeah, but that's not important. Uptime is important, right? And today, and even not today, but in the year 2010 or 2012, when I was leading the data center energy efficiency summit and, and collaborative effort in that program, by the time we got to there in 2012 or so, industry surveys showed that energy efficiency was number one or number two for almost every company, right? So we had progressed tremendously in just a little over a decade to where energy efficiency became knowledgeable that it was one of the most critical and important things in the data center. Yeah, I mean, and, a, lot, a lot of that must, must must be related to the fact that those those silos that we talked about were broken down because you start looking internally at your bottom line and energy efficiency actually you know, while it has the moral high ground of better for the earth and, and, and all that, it also has a financial element to it because energy becomes the largest cost associated with data center. So yeah. the more efficient you are, the, the larger your margins are. Well, absolutely. And from my time, I'm, I'm fortunate to have also a degree in business. And so I at least have a basic understanding of, fi- of finance. And, and I, from my early days at Sun Microsystems, I was already meeting with the CFO there and, and on a pretty regular basis to present projects. And Certainly onward throughout my career, I've met with the CFOs and CEOs and the boards of companies and presented to them multiple times. And that allows me to really understand what's important to them. And if we think about it, like if I go into a CFO and I say, I need $100 million to build a data center, it's going to have this great PUE. The CFO is going to say, well, what's PUE and why does it matter to me? Right. And so really, we don't have to go in there and say, I need, I, I want to build this so it has a really great PUE. I need to go in there and say, but it's going to cost less per unit of sales. Right. And so the, I'll give you an idea. Like some of the companies I work with, we say, well, how many kilowatt hours is it to deliver a package? How many kilowatt hours is it to deliver a writer mile? How many kilowatt hours is it to deliver a transaction, a search query, a, a, a food product right on the shelf, whatever it may be, whatever your business is, right? We really have to break down the metric to the business unit, right? What are we selling? Right. Because then I go into the CFO and I say, I, now I'm going to lower our number of kilowatt hours, right? And hence, therefore, our cost, right? Per unit of sale, right? Whatever our sale is, whatever that widget is that we are selling as a company. And now when I do it that way, the CFO, goes, CFO says, great. Right, you're and translating it into a language he understands. Yes, that he or she understands. And they're watching the I'm sorry. portal, right? Se- seeing that all of, a, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, our kilowatt hours per unit right of sale is going up or down. And when it goes up, they say, hey, what's going on? When it goes down, they say, hey, good job. Right? We're, we're affecting change. Keep doing it, right? <laughs> what do you need to keep making it better, right? So then they're coming to us on a proactive basis, helping us to go ahead and continue to be better. And that as, it, as anyone in industry, any industry, right? We just have to be able to make sure that we can speak the speak of our management, 
right? And that we can put it in their terms. And when we can do that, then we can really get the, we can get the, the support that we need to accomplish what it is that we want to accomplish. That's great. So I want to bring forth just at a very high level of your backgrounds, Casey Haspin with Sun Microsystems, with Exodus, with Google, uh, with BA Systems, with Equinix, of course, Yahoo, Berkeley Labs, and the one that really does stand out, Tesla. How is it working for Elon, Casey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, if you can imagine, which you probably anybody can, but yeah, I did. It was challenging, no doubt about it. I mean, I'll just in a simple word, it was fascinating and challenging. I'll, I'll put it in two ways. The team that I worked with at Tesla was world-class. They were the, without a doubt, the best team I've ever worked with anywhere. It was on, on, on my team, it was over a million applicants for every one position, far harder to get accepted there into that engineering group than getting accepted into Harvard or any other university. So it was top-notch, world-class, best in the best, right? And building and designing not just car factories, but battery cell production, where you have all kinds of nasty chemicals and all kinds of hot gases, hot oils, other forms of hot liquids and all kinds of crazy stuff that you have to deal with. Extremely low humidity, fractions, thousands of a, of a percent of a, of, a humi- of, a, of a point of humidity. You have to manage in massive big rooms and stuff. It's really complicated. And I got brought in to help make it more efficient and take us from 13 vehicles that we could produce a day to over 1,700 a day a year later. And I presented Elon a lot and it was challenging because it was at a time when the company was cash strapped, was down to literally weeks of operating capital and yet was still expanding production and had to expand that tremendously. And 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 yet it was the thing that presenting Elon that, that kind of catches you off guard every time you present is because he will ask that question you never, ever think about. And so you think you're completely prepared. You go in there in the next week for the next meeting, present, and you think you got every single answer to everything. And then he, then there's some question that comes completely out, out that you just like, okay, I don't, I don't even know how to answer this. Right. And I can respond pretty well to most things on the fly, but I would oftentimes have to say, what? Let me go back to the team. We'll work on that. We'll get back to you next week. Is it a related question or is he just like, why aren't I in the mood for olives today? It was related, but it was something like, okay, we need, you, 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 we, we need 50 million to build this thing. And that's the minimum thing we need that we need to go do it. And it's going to be the best design. And here's why it's the best design. And then the answer might come back. Okay. Well, can you do it for 5 million and make it so it's elevating or levitating or something like that? And you're like, Maybe <laughs> let's go figure it out. Right. And then you go figure it out and, and come back and come up with an answer to, to solve for that. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, the, that, was, that was always, that was always surprising about like, sorry, the, like the applications to like become a Google engineer or whatever, is that they would never ask you a specific technical question. They would ask you like how you would figure out some completely random problem, how many jelly beans are in that container or whatever the cliche yep. question is, because it's not your knowledge of one specific area that's important, but really your ability to critically think and your your ability to like adapt the way you think on, on the fly. So it's it's it sounds like that's that's relevant to the way things were were even at Tesla. It was very key at Tesla and it was actually a real strong suit of mind because I'm incredibly rationally minded. Like I I break everything down to what's rational and logical. And that's exactly how Elon and Tesla work is it, if it's logical, okay, then the, your your idea will prevail. And there's constant debate amongst the engineering team and really smart people. And but whoever has the best logic and can communicate it well, right, will that that decision will go forward. Everybody will support it, right? Whether or not they were for or against it, 
right? They will move forward that best rational, lo- logical conclusion. I'm not sure the media narrative about Elon is like he's the most rational person on the planet. But clearly, yeah, when I, it comes to making these decisions, that's a different, it's a different metric. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, undoubtedly, everybody who pretty much works at, at Tesla is pretty rational oriented. And I used to do, I don't know how many, but I used to interview probably a dozen or, or several dozen candidates a week, right? And and these were final candidates going through their final interview. And it's a pretty complex interview process. It's all day long. And they have to present a, a, a pretty complex problem that they solved. And and then they get kind of hammered by a lot of different disciplines all across the board, right? All, like you said, not just engineering, but all different areas. And, and, and in that process, like one of the things we're really trying to find out is can they communicate through the problem and think through it rationally and logically, even something they don't know. And I remember in my job interview, the guy asked me something like the, the key engineering guy asked me something. I'm like, I don't know that system at all. And he's like, I know it's why I'm asking you about it. How would you design it? And I'm like, I know nothing about it. So, okay, let's think on the fly. Well, here's what I do know. So here's how I'd go about that process. Right. And so, yeah, that's a lot of what you have to deal with because you're constantly dealt with things at Tesla or where I was, where, especially in management, management, all the factories and the design and operations, those and building battery cells at a scale that no one had ever done at a rate of literally hundreds a second being completely produced that a product that takes weeks to produce. Right. And, and you deal with all kinds of extreme problems and you just have to be able to work through them and figure it out and, and work as a team player to do that and break it down to most, really those, those core principles. Like what are first principles and what, what's the key issue here? And let's solve for that. So Elon often gets compared as Steve Jobs. On a personal level, how was your experience working with them and collaborating with them? It's idle with this. Unfortunately, I never had a chance to meet Steve Jobs, but I have had dinner with Steve Wozniak and that was a pretty fascinating dinner. And he shared a lot of great stories. And I spent a day with Jeff Bezos a, a, a while back. And I had, I, I, I worked with the co-founders of Yahoo and I did work a little bit with the co-founders of Google. And so I had, I had some opportunities to work with a lot of key players out there in the industry and clearly a few others that I don't go on about. And Elon is absolutely unique in that, but all of them have, they're all unique, right? They're all unique in their own way and, and they're fascinating. And Steve Jobs was always, an, I'm an incredible fan of his, right? That whole idea to think differently, do it differently, approach it differently and, and think about what the person really needs, not what they per se think they want, right? And, and trying to solve for that problem that they don't even know about yet. And that, that's a pretty fascinating thing. And it, it, a Tesla, that was a pretty key thing. A Tesla was trying to solve for a problem everywhere from beginning to start with the Roadster and, and Martin Eberhard, who was a, the founder of the company, starting trying to build this first electric car at, at somewhat of a scale that had incredible performance, right? And still looked and sounded great and everything else, drove great, all those things, to turning into a mass scale adoption, which just now become, right? Which is really just so exciting to see. And that means really just breaking every single thing down to that first order principle and how do you solve for it and not doing things the same way. Much we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, not replicating what people have done, not taking the same motor design that everyone else has done or same inverter design or same electronics, right? Or the same battery, right? And say, no, we have to change it, right? And that was, I did a lot of head pounding when I was at Tesla because I also managed really the key relationship with Panasonic and the battery cell production in the in some of the contracts that we had with them. And it was a real challenge because that company is a hundred year old company that if they've been doing it the same way for 10 years, that's a that's an accomplishment. They keep doing it the same way for another 10 years. Tesla's like, hey, we broke it yesterday. We built it yesterday. We're going to break it today. We're going to redesign it and have it up and running tomorrow. And we're all, it's a very different cultural you know, approach. 
And that's somewhat, I think, how we need to almost approach our data centers is constantly iterating, constantly changing, constantly evolving, because we know that technology is evolving far faster than our data centers are. So let's keep evolving our data centers so they can adapt to that forward change and not keep redoing it the same way. Like as a data center person, you go, oh, this is what a data center is. Well, we shouldn't be doing that. A data center doesn't necessarily need to look and feel the same and have all the same electrical components and mechanical components and cooling done the same way. We can absolutely change this. We went from 120 volt to 208 volt to 400 volt. And that was, there were some big steps and they took some time. We're now doing liquid cooling at pretty mass scale. It was back in 2010, I was doing 50 kilowatts a rack in a data center, the PUE 1.05. And that was unheard of at the time, but we, we can do that today. We can do it at scale. And we just have to, again, kind of rethink how we're doing things and make sure it's adaptable and changeable so it can evolve with that technology of tomorrow. Complacency so, of the enemy. Yeah. Based on that, what's what's your stance on PUE as a metric, a standard metric across the world? I I, I definitely have a, I, I adore the, the, the I adore both, I, any good metrics and PUE is a fantastic metric. And I was part of some of those working group meetings early on in that meeting. And, and Christian Bellotti made a, a great suggestion with that 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 metric. And he, the industry has done a great job embracing it. And I remember back in the early days, the PUEs were averaging in the industry of about three, and then they got down to two, and then 1.5, and we're starting to pat ourselves on the back. And at the same time, again, like I said, it was it's been 12 years now since I was able to help design data centers with the, with a team effort, right? Down to PUEs of 1.05, right? For big, high density, high, high reliable, highly reliable data centers. And so I kind of see that PUE sort of a, it's an outsold metric now. Like in, unless you really are using it to really monitor, manage your infrastructure side of your business, then we really should be focused on the, which is great. And it's great for that. And we really should be at PUEs at 1.1 or less, like it's just not that hard to do in almost any kind of data center, almost anywhere today, right? We have all the technology, we're doing it, but really we should be rethinking it. And again, back to metrics, we should be thinking as like, we shouldn't just be focused on infrastructure. When we're down to PUEs at 1.1 or less, the IT load is 90% of our load. Why don't we have good metrics for the 90% of our load? Let's do a Pareto analysis here and let's focus on what really is causing most of the energy use, right? That is the IT load. So we have to have good metrics for IT load. And that gets back to my, what is my total kilowatt hours for really my revenue component? What's my actual workload? Is it search queries? Is it video served, right? Is it meal served? Is it, you know, miles driven? What What is it? And let's make sure we're breaking it down to that really key metric there. And let's focus on that because then we can really affect and change the IT side as well, which is networking, the hardware, right? The storage all of those components, because those are really the things that have been, I would say, bloating in energy use while our infrastructure has gotten really efficient. Brilliant analysis, by the way. You've earned all of your degrees. I don't know if you're looking at, at, to me for any sort of corroboration of that, but I would totally give you degrees again. You, you mentioned, we talk about complacency being, being the enemy, and I looked through your kind of LinkedIn profile. And in the olden days, it was like, in the 50s and the 60s, people would stay at one company for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, retire at that company. They started in the mailroom. They retired as middle management. And then they had a nice uh, they, they had a nice pension and, and they were able to live the American dream. And these days you see a lot of folks going from company to company to company for one reason or another. It seems to me that in your history, you have between one and two years for, for many of these positions. Obviously, there are, there are exceptions. Is there is, is there a strategy to that? Is it 
Is it that you like to get into these positions, you have a problem to solve, you solve that problem and then you move on to keep things fresh or does it just happen to be the way it worked? Is there, is there, is there a method to the madness? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a little bit of both method and madness. And, and sometimes it's also things out of my control. I've been with two companies now that, or three companies now that have been acquired. And so obviously jobs take change. It don't, it doesn't mean your, your title necessarily changes or what you do change, but the company name changes, right? So sometimes it's because of acquisition, right? Sure. And other times it's because of really circumstances. A good example is I loved working at Google, but it was getting to the point where I was traveling basically 26 days a month and it was getting pretty exhausting traveling 28 days, 26, 28 days a month. Right. And I wanted, I wanted a little more of a home life. And so a little more of a relationship that with folks, with people at Yahoo, I loved my job there as developing the data centers around the globe and expanding them dramatically. And, and I had teams in, in a couple dozen countries and I was traveling to 12 countries a month. And I really enjoyed that. That was because we were, we were accomplishing so much. And at the same time, I was in an executive meeting when the CEO at the time, he had to step out of the room to go take a call. And it was really odd to, to have to step out of the room during a call. Yeah. Five, five to 5 p.m. at night. And he comes back to the five minutes later and said, hey, that was Steve Ballmer making an acquisition offer on the company. And knowing the two founder, co-founders of that company and the board, I knew it was going to be a terribly contentious fight and be terrible for Yahoo and it wouldn't work out well. And I'm like, okay, after being an exodus and having to take it through bankruptcy and out of bankruptcy, I, I helped lead that bankruptcy process and have to take it out of bankruptcy, right? And sell that, those sell essentially the company off, right? That was a heartbreaking experience. And I told myself, I never want to be part of that again, right? So that was another one of those experiences. And sometimes I am hired as what I call kind of like a, a, a secret weapon. I come in and I solve a big problem and that was over a year or two and then solve the problem and, and move on. And a lot of times I don't want to necessarily move on, but that's kind of the way it goes. Sometimes it's the way business works or there's another big problem out there to go solve. And I want to make sure I'm solving big problems and making the biggest impact I can. Life is short. In my time, my career, I realized I only have a few years left in my career. I want to make it impactful and I want to really leave the world in as good of a place as I can, knowing I, I have for my career. And and yeah, that's so I, 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 want, to, I want to make big accomplishments. What has been the most satisfying event in your professional career? Or wow, that, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, Bill. You always have such great questions. I listen to this podcast. I'm, I'm always impressed with your questions and, and it's really great what you guys are doing here. I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that per se, other than maybe seeing the energy efficiency has become a de facto importance in the data center industry. Right. And, and I will not take sole credit for that. That is the, the work of a lot of people. I was just one of those many who came into it with that focus. And it's so great to see that, that our industry has become immensely efficient compared to how it was. That efficiency is a key part of the importance in this industry. And it undoubtedly will continue to be when I work with crypto miners and I look at the efficiency of their data centers and how they're rethinking and redoing data centers compared to sort of how us enterprises and cloud and hyperscalers do data centers and, and data center providers do them. So different, right? And I'm so, I'm glad to see that because it is just, it's it's going to drive change across the entire industry and continue to drive this change across the entire industry. So I I think that would, I would say is probably my my biggest accomplishment, not, not that it's my accomplishment, it's our accomplishment as an industry. I was just one of the key drivers to it. And so 
Yeah, I would say that's a key one. And obviously working at Tesla and taking them from call it 13 cars a day to 1700 cars a day and continue to grow and build from that and what that company's done and to show that electric cars are not only better in every way, but they're cheaper to build. And so it's, it's, and obviously more efficient and more sustainable. And so it's going to really change our transportation. And that means it's also going to put a lot more impact on our electric grid. And so we have to really absolutely be prepared for that as an industry to be prepared for demand is going to skyrocket on the electric grid and electric grid is not, not going to be able to keep up. And we have to do everything we can with the resources we have and tools we have in our data centers and, and change how we expect the grid to respond and react to us so that we can really react and respond to it and, and be beneficial to it, not just a taker of that power. I wonder if this is going to be a controversial, controversial question. What do you drive, Casey? Yeah, it's a great question. I, it's, it's, it's a, it's a funny story, but. I don't know. I don't hear Tesla. I do not hear Tesla. (laughs) Yeah. It's a sad story. I didn't know that that offered, offered Teslas many times and I didn't need a new car because right when I started Tesla, I just bought a new car and I'm a real believer in kind of buying that new car and and holding it. What's that? You're driving a Hummer. You're driving like no, a, not at all. No, an incredibly efficient car. It, it's an in, in, it's one of the most efficient vehicles on the road. And I I was a I was a, one of the first buyers of a Prius, and I had a license plate that said "Saving Money." That was my mar- <laughs> that was my marketing plate in California because like to me, saving energy is saving money, right? That that is what it is, right? And so you'd be silly to just burn more money out of your tailpipe, right? Why would you Why would you do that, right? With less efficiency or letting your car idle. Sadly, I do not have an electric car today because. Like I said, I just bought a new car and I started working at Tesla. I didn't need another one. I was waiting for the Model Y to come out. I unfortunately left Tesla right as the Model Y was coming out. So I never had a chance to get one. And then it was just a matter of like, okay, I might as well wait. I have this super efficient car right now. Let me just hold on to it. I hardly use it. COVID hit. How much do we drive during COVID, right? None. (laughs) And so like, okay, I might as well just like hold on and wait until really there's more electric car options available out there. Because what I want isn't quite really out there in the market yet. I haven't heard an answer to this question. Have you? Is it a VW bug? No. What is it? What is it? <laughs> I, I Nancy have, is waiting for the bus. What is it? The Volkswagen bus. I have a, uh, yeah. just like us. I have a, a, a BMW diesel that gets about 50 miles to the gallon. And Got it's it. Really the, efficient, clean, really the clean diesel. The clean burning. diesel. Yeah. By the way, person that had the most efficient car at, historically, Fred Flintstone. But, yeah, paddled the Paddle the field. Yep. <laughs> okay, so when, you I were commute, when I was commuting the bear, I always wanted to invent a pedal, a ability to pedal while you're driving. And so you could generate, get an exercise, get a workout while you're driving. And of course, put some of the electricity back into the drivetrain. It wouldn't be a lot, but as a mountain bike racer, I know exactly how much power I put out. Exactly, right? What Plus, if you have, I mean, you have, you have obesity is a huge epidemic in, in, in the country. I mean, that seems like a, a clear way to, to maybe it. solve some of the problems. It, it would certainly Sorry. augment the, the amount of power and help our, our exercise. That's right. Casey, if you were a king, what would be a couple of things that you'd be looking at uh, for, for the next generation to be mindful of or focus on? Your grace. Well, when you say for the next generation, I really want to focus on education. I believe that education is absolutely key. Obviously, it's been a key part of my life and I still keep learning this day and will continue to keep learning throughout my my life. When I graduated uh, from college the first time, I think I went through four graduation ceremonies over my college career. When I graduated the first time, 
there was this woman who graduated and she was probably about 75 years old. And I went up to her after the ceremony and said, hey, congratulations. That's so awesome. Your graduate degree at your age. And of course, here I'm this young little 20 year old peep. And she says, oh, dear, this is like my ninth degree. I just keep learning because why wouldn't you? And I, I was so like, like blown away, like, of course, why wouldn't you keep learning? Right. And so I'd believe that really we have to have really great education and that's education for all the way from, of course, elementary school up through college, but also continuing education as we are in our careers. We always have to keep learning. And so like we talked about, how do we revise how we do metrics? How do we revise how we collaborate with people? How do we revise how we best communicate with people, whether it's one-on-one or with executive management? So how do we keep an open mind so we're not getting into kind of our own internal silos of how things should be done, that we're keeping this open mind and and of how to do things and make sure we can stay transparent with others as to the best approaches to how to do things. So that, that would be, that's what I would like to see. And that really we're focused on the end goal, right? The end goal being whatever that be, but in my mind, it is to, to continue to be incredibly more efficient, way more efficient than we are today, way more sustainable than we are today. We're looking at that as a net basis and also looking at the impact we have on the world. We look at what's happening right now with the 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 leverage that Russia has on energy and, and also on some other things that they're doing right now with that, that, that it has impacted all of us, right? And we have to realize that we take when with something like oil as a commodity where supply and demand are almost perfectly in balance and you take some of that supply off the table, but you don't reduce demand, price goes asymptotic, right? That's basic economics 101. So we have to really realize that we have to solve for these problems on a way bigger scale and not keep kind of use doing things the same way and using the same resources. And so there's a lot of change that we have. We are, uh, we are what? 50, 55 podcasts in, maybe 60 podcasts in at this point. That was the first <laughs> use of the word asymptotic, I think I've, we've ever had. I, that's an incredible. The amazing career, amazing ability, ability to, to articulate, amazing a- educational experience. If there was something you've learned over the course of your career that you could have, like if you could speak to the, uh, the younger Casey um, and say, do this, don't do that, don't fret about this. This is not as big of a deal as you made it out to be, whatever the case may be. Is there is there something you would change? Is there something you would do, do different? Is there something you would tell young Casey that you wish you had known then? Yeah, yeah. And it's a little bit harder in hindsight, but one of the things would have been said, hey, Google and Tesla are going to be good successes. Stay with them. Right. And and you don't always know that, of course, in the in the present case, right? And so things change and evolve. And I probably would have been able to affect and make a lot more change if I'd stayed longer at Google and same also at Tesla. And so I, I probably would have driven things a little differently there. Um, one of the things is, is but as a, if I'm going to tell a young person, like obviously you can't say, hey, stay in your job if it's a yeah. bad job or whatever. You don't know what the future is going to be. But the one thing I would say is really keep an open mind to both the industry and the the job that you're doing. And really try to focus on affecting that change that is important to you as a person and finding your place of where you can make the biggest impact as a person in a career and in a role and continue to strive for making that and, and really drive for the long road. When I started my career, let's just call it roughly a quarter century ago, I didn't really realize just how much change and impact that we could have within my career's time so far. And that leaves me very optimistic for the future because I, that makes me believe that there's a lot more big change that we can all make and are going to continue to make as various industries, renewable energy, energy production, data center design, data center development, IT, the workloads we do, the online platforms, all these things. 
And so I think we really can use these to good and continue to do a lot of good and really accelerate the growth change or I shouldn't say growth, but just accelerate good positive change, right? And continue to drive that and make more. When I was 20 years old and I wanted to start an electric car company, that was so far-fetched and so almost impossible to do at that time. We didn't have the components or the technologies and things to do that at that point in time. But look, it's happened, right? A bunch of engineers got finally got together and have made that happen. And so it can happen and it's almost always a collective collaborative effort. So that'd be the other thing I'd say, work with really smart, good people and collaborate with them and everybody own their piece of it and grow together to, to develop the change you want to change. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. On a positive note, though you did not start the electric car company, you were part of one. I like the pedal company. I think we need to start a pedal a pedal core company. I love it. That's Thanks so much, great. Casey. Phil and the Bill, thank you so much for both of what you do. And thank you for having me on your podcast today. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.